Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., today's interview is one of those interviews. There's people that we interview, and I always think to myself, J.J.'s going to love this. Uh (laughs) And usually, honestly, (laughs) if J.J.'s going to love it, I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. We no. hate the same people. <laughs> but it's usually about like money doesn't matter, profit doesn't matter. We should really just be a youth ministry. You know I never say those words. I never, especially the youth ministry part, but you know I never say those words, but I do push, Believe them. <laughs> no, no, no. But I do push you sometimes in the area of people. It's funny, Kate, uh, our friend Kate, our mutual friend Kate, yeah. is going to be handling some social media consulting for me. Yeah. And yesterday, she came out of the house to have our initial meeting. She's going through her keynote, and Kate and I have been friends, and Betsy yeah. and Kate are good friends. And she got to the slide, and she said, okay, there's just one thing. If we're going to work together, the relationship comes first, the friendship comes first, and that's it. We will stop working together if that is ever negatively affected, and yeah. I want you to know that. And I said, Kate... I want you to know that the relationship doesn't matter to me. <laughs> that if I gain as many as five more Instagram followers, I will drop you I like will a drop hot potato. You. <laughs> <laughs> Not true, of course. It yes. would, but a hundred, maybe. Oh, that's a lot of Instagram followers. But but you know, I thought that's where the interview was going. Uh-huh. I was shocked. Yeah. And Chad, our producer, was shocked. We, I, you know, not that I didn't think it was going to be a good interview. Yeah. But you know, our guest Gary Hamill, who's written a book called Humanocracy, he's mm-hmm. a professor at London Business School. He's written a book that combines what I love about capitalism mm-hmm. and incentivizing people, and the importance of success, excellence, and winning. Yeah. With free people to be themselves and to bring their entire uh, genius and yeah. intuition and innovativeness to work every day. Don't turn them into cogs and wheels. Yeah. And I think when you do that, I mean, that's the way I view the- I think it's the key. It's one of the keys to the success of our company. Yes. It's huge. When you actually allow people to be themselves and put them in positions of strength and give them some freedom, the business will reap a reward. Right. Right? Because it's one of those things where- you know, not that you obviously people a lot of times talk about work life balance, right? You know, but a lot when you hate your job or you don't feel like you have a freedom, then you're done at four fifty five every day. Yeah. You're, you're not gonna out. think about it in the evening. Yeah. You know, you get asked to do anything extra and it's like, well then I'm taking half day Friday. You yep. know, you're like so the company actually gets more out of people when they feel ownership of the company, and that's ownership what, yeah. of their, and Gary talks their about division. That. There's something about the way we do things, and there's different ways people do things. We do not really micromanage people. We've hired three people in the last, what, two months? Yeah. And moved them all to town uh, from Chicago and Seattle and and Jacksonville. We moved them all to town. Basically, we're handing each of them a division. Yeah. And we are saying, here's what we do. Here's the structure that we work with. And here are the things that need to be accomplished. Go. Yeah. And- we know, because now we know how to hire the right people, yeah. that used to, if they turn around and say, 
well, I understand. What do you, what do you want me to what do? What do you want me to yep. do? Mm-hmm. We just hired the wrong person. Yes. In fact, when I used to be part of, now we've grown so much. I used to be a part of all of the interviews, and I'm not anymore because there's so many more of us. But one of the things I used to tell people, part of my job was to say, here's why you shouldn't come work for us. And <laughs> one of the things I would say is, if you're expecting to be told what to do, this is not the right place. Right. Because you're- We are a team of entrepreneurs. You are going to be frustrated because you're going to sit there and go, well, what am I supposed to do? And Or gonna, you didn't tell me I was supposed to do that. Yep. And it's, no, your job is to be creative, build this division of the company. And usually when we're hiring people, it's to really kind of enter into a new space that we haven't been before a lot of times. And yeah. we're saying, bring your expertise to the table. We are hiring you because we believe you're an expert. Yep. So take this and run. I have a friend uh, in Chicago. He's got a big company. He's got uh, 1,500 employees. Mm-hmm. And he is a micromanager. Mm-hmm. I mean, he can micromanage 1,500 people. Yeah. He's never had a daydream in his life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's only watching you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Hey, thanks for not doing that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> My goal is to surpass him in revenue with less than 100 employees. Yeah. And I think we're going to do it. Yep. Because the thing is, if you have to micromanage every person, then they, when you're not looking, they're not doing anything. You're playing small ball. But what if you had 100 entrepreneurs who were running their own companies and figuring out how to make the company money and sharing in that? Well, that's even when you brought me on in the very beginning, that's a little bit what you said to me is essentially, here's this new thing we're creating. We created private workshops because at the time you were going out and talking, if companies wanted one-on-one they needed to hire you and you just couldn't keep up with right, the right. demand. We couldn't grow it. So you said, start this, you're going to start doing this, and then I want you to build this division. And essentially handed it over to me and said, you're responsible to make sure the finances work. And to be work. honest, I didn't know what the division could look like. Exactly. Yep. And two years later, we had, what, eight, eight or nine facilitators, facilitators going yep. all over the world. Well, your goal for me in the first year was to do six, and I did 26. And then the next year we did 52, and then it kind of kept growing from there. Right. And if you would have said, here's exactly how you I want you to do it, you need to do it exactly like I do it. Yeah, because you had to adjust the keynote. You had yep. to turn a two-day workshop into a day-and-a-half yep. workshop. And there were things I said, I, I can't do it the way you do it, and so you have to let me do this. And you did, and we now built it. And I actually have turned that over to other people. I'm not doing that anymore. But that's how we've built this company. Well, and I wonder about our listeners. I wonder if there are parts of your business that could be could just take off under somebody else's leadership yeah. and ownership. Yes. And I wonder if you couldn't you couldn't make a ton of money <laughs> if you set them free to do that. Now yeah. you need to participate. They need to participate yeah. in that as well. But you know, I wonder if that couldn't happen. If you don't think it can, keep listening. Yeah, yeah. Because Gary Hamill is going to talk to you about multi-billion dollar Japanese corporations that operate like 2,000 micro uh, entrepreneur mm-hmm. centers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a different way of thinking about it. But if you, th- you know, I know some of you are wired like me. And you're, you're going to listen to this and go, this is just communism. <laughs> Anything that cares about people is communism. <laughs> yeah, that's just like Any you. sort yep. of profit share that's is communism. That's what I always say, Don. Anything with heart, he thinks is communism. 
Because a lot of things with heart that, are. That is not true, <laughs> and you don't think that. I'm not going to let you. I'm not letting you have this image that is contrary to capitalists who you are. love people too. <laughs> That's my bumper sticker. That is your bumper sticker. <laughs> that I will let stand. <laughs> anyway, I like Gary Hamill. Again, he's a professor at the London Business School, and his book is called Humanocracy. And he talks about. Uh, he's such an energetic guy. You're going to love the conversation. I'm not going to keep talking about Gary. I'm going to let you listen to him. Here's my conversation with Gary Hamill. Gary Hamill, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Your book is called Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. You are going to talk to us about a, the problem of dehumanizing the people who work inside of our organization and as such really losing creativity, inspiration, innovation, and the bottom line, money. Do you think it's costing us money to turn people into cogs and wheels? It definitely is. Conservatively, by our estimates, it costs the U.S. economy about $3.5 trillion a year in lost economic output. And, and if we could solve that problem, we would more than double the current productivity growth rate in the United States, which is critical to improving standard of livings and, uh, and addressing income inequality. What is humanocracy? I've got a bunch of questions for you about how we develop processes in order to scale and, and all that sort of thing and how we can not lose the human element when we do that. But before we get into all of that, what is humanocracy from your perspective? It can be described in a variety of ways as kind of a paradigm, as a worldview, also as a particular problem to solve and a set of principles. So, so let me just take one. Uh, in terms of, of the problem that, that this is out to solve, you know, bureaucracy, which is a an old technology, goes back, depending on how you count, at least 150 years or maybe several thousand years. But bureaucracy was basically aimed at, at solving the problem of, of efficiency of scale or more particularly control. And the goal was to turn human beings into semi-programmable robots and to ensure that they were as reliable as the machines they were serving. Humanocracy, by contrast, sets out not to maximize control, but to maximize contribution. And so the goal is how do you create a work environment and a sense of purpose that, that encourages people to bring the very best of themselves to work, their initiative, their imagination, their passion, but the human capabilities that you have to see as gifts that people either choose to bring to work every day or don't, but certainly cannot be commanded. And all the evidence, and we can get in if you like to some of the data, but all the evidence says that, that most human beings are not bringing those capabilities to work every day simply because they don't have the incentives to do so. So that's what we're, we're setting out to change on the assumption that given the challenges we face today in the world, we can no longer afford to waste an iota of human initiative or ingenuity. Let's cover some of the knee-jerk pushback that probably some of our listeners will will have, and I'm sure you've even counted it a million times. You know, we create processes as we scale our business in order to really, a couple things. One is to ensure quality. And the second is if people leave and they need to be replaced and somebody has been in their position who really brought themselves to their job and did a unique, approach their job uniquely without processes, then the next person you know, maybe taking over a $5 million division and have no idea how to run it or what was happening before them. How do you solve some of those sort of practical issues for some of our listeners who are trying to scale companies who don't, you know, they agree with you. They, they want people to bring their whole selves to work, but they've also got some practical problems of quality control and revolving door of employees. How do you solve that problem? How do you let people be human in what arguably is a franchise machine? 
it's an absolutely spot on question because there is at the, at the core of this, there's a there's a paradox. You know, obviously we need organizations that are that are on one hand like a paragon of penny pinching efficiency. So that means we do need the discipline, the control, the focus, the alignment, and all of those things. But today you also need organizations that you know are paragons of rule busting innovation, are hyper responsive to customers, and so on. And so the question is, how do you get a both and? You know, the bureaucratic model put all of its kind of all of its chips on on the problem of efficiency and control and alignment, which are incredibly important. You know, I, I think of the next generation of iPhones is are going to have chips in them probably that are seven nanometers uh, built to seven nanometer tolerances. Seven nanometers is about the the distance your fingernails will grow in the next few seconds. That takes a lot of control to do that. I don't have a problem with control, but but we've assumed that these things are either or. You know, one of one of the common uh, perspectives for management consultants is that it's simply impossible for a larger organization to beat a startup. That just can't be flexible and fast and innovative enough. And we we you know we frankly disagree. I'll I'll give you one example. One of the companies that we spend quite some time uh, profiling in our book is Hire. I know them pretty well. It's the world's largest appliance maker based in Japan. Hire divided a 80,000-person organization into 4,000 microenterprises. So it's it's basically a you know a league of, of of startups, if you will. And in these microenterprises that are you know relatively small, 10, 15, 20 employees, they're guaranteed three freedoms: the freedom to set strategy, the freedom to hire and define roles as they as they see fit, and also uh, the freedom to distribute rewards. So you have you know this collection of things which, which looks like wow, you fragmented your organization. How in the world could you achieve here the coordination and the focus you need? But that happens in a different way than it happens in bureaucracy. And bureaucracy control happens with top-down mandates and a lot of overarching functions that try to tie things together. At higher, that coordination comes because the units themselves are all able to contract with each other. So if I'm a, if I'm a little business unit, a little micro-enterprise at higher, and I'm making three-door refrigerators, I contract with other micro-enterprises for design help, for HR help, for distribution, and so on. And, and, and so I can enter into those contracts freely, and I can reconfigure them if my needs change. But coordination happens that way. It also happens more through collaboration than centralization. When there are big challenges like how to get all these appliances to talk to each other in, in the Internet of Things, there are ways of all these microenterprises coming together and agreeing investments and agreeing standards and then moving forward. So what you see in the organizations we profile in the book, and many of these are, are really kind of hardcore industrial companies like, like Nucor, America's largest steelmaker, Morningstar, the biggest tomato processor, these are technology-intensive, process-intensive, gritty industries, and yet they're running with a fraction of the bureaucracy you see in other organizations. Wow. With Hire has two layers of management. Uh, Nucor's head office, as a $20 billion company, has 100 people in the head office versus more than 1,000 in the number two steelmaker. So the, the trick here is how do you buy the benefits of bureaucracy but do it duty-free? That's really incredible. And I would imagine that you know what you're also talking about is preventing your industry or your company from being disrupted. We've seen the old model of big bureaucratic organizations, Kodak, for example, being disrupted so quickly where probably if their people were allowed to be fully human and and you know bring their innovation to work every day, they may have been the leader in digital cameras rather than being replaced. Uh, now I think they're making pharmaceuticals now, which is very interesting. But you talk about the need to poke the bureaucratic beehive. Give me an example of how we could poke the bureaucratic beehive, say, in our small to mid-cap company. Well, the interesting thing is you don't have to be a very big company to start to have kind of 
you know, the cost of sclerosis. We reckon that uh, at about 200 people, bureaucracy starts to grow faster than the organization itself. As you put in layers, you put in more heavyweight process and so on. So, you know, the, the simplest kind of description of, of how you counter that is really saying, how do I, as an organization grows, how do I make sure it continues to feel like a startup? You know, the real advantage, I've, I've lived in Silicon Valley a long time, and the real advantage of most of those startups is not that they have some entirely unique business idea. Most of those ideas were out there in the ether before. To take an example, uh, you know, the idea of electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles, that had been discussed in Ford and GM for at least a generation. But the advantage of a startup is it's flat, fast, open, free, nimble. So it has an organizational advantage. And, and all of those things tend to get lost as you scale up. But if you look at these larger organizations like Nucor that have preserved that or like Svenska Handelsbank and the most consistently profitable bank in Europe, the way they preserve that is by breaking the organization into small units as it grows, ensuring that operating units are, are kept probably less than, than 50 people, giving those units a real P&L that's mostly free of, of corporate allocation so you feel like you're running a real business, ensuring that the people in those businesses have the freedom to make meaningful business decisions. So rather than kind of you know giving them a set of kind of top-down KPIs, synthetic targets that have been set at the top, just holding them responsible and ensuring that they, they have the, the ability to make the decisions to drive that forward. And then critically, giving them a significant financial upside in the result. And then where you need coordination, that happens, as I argued, either through internal contracting or through collaboration. But so you can build very substantial organizations with literally you know, no hierarchy at all. But the secret to that is really creating a company where everyone has the freedom and the incentives and the skills to think and act like an owner. And that you can, you know, our experience is I can scale that indefinitely because we see, I'll give you maybe one of the most radical examples of all. So there's a Dutch company, uh, Birdzorg, which is the leader in Holland in home healthcare. 16,000 nurses and, and caregivers who, are, who work across the country to deliver care to patients who come home after surgery or elderly patients and so on. So they run this 16,000 person organization with only two managers. So that's a one to 8,000 span of control. And the entire head office staff for this company is 100 people, and most of those are in IT. So they divided these thousands of employees into small teams, about 12 uh, caregivers in each team, that are responsible for finding office space, for recruiting colleagues, for finding clients, for managing their little business, and the performance of every one of those teams is visible across the entire network. So everybody knows exactly how they're doing. And critically, it's all held together by a social platform where if you come up, up against some problem that, that you can't solve, you post it and you have 16,000 people out there ready to provide answers. They share training across this platform and everybody, because everybody is looking at the same metrics, you want to level up. Everybody's making sure they're well-trained, they're absorbing the latest thinking. So you end up you know, delivering a fairly complex uh, service in an organization where, where you have two managers and 16,000 employees, which most people say, that's literally impossible. You can't do that. And they beat every single competitor on cost, on employee turnover, on customer satisfaction. So I think we've, we've just made an assumption that the only way you can build a disciplined and focused organization is with layers and rule-choked processes. And the evidence increasingly says, no, there, there are other ways. You just talked about the power of ownership and thinking like an owner. And you say on page 114 of your book, 
you'd think that CEOs would recognize that the best way to fight off a battalion of hungry disruptors is to build an army of homegrown entrepreneurs. What do our teams, the people who work for us, what do they need to feel or experience to identify as owners? Historically, we thought, well, the way to do that is to literally make sure they all have, you know, a few shares in the company. And that's definitely, you know, meritorious. I would not argue against that. But on average, that's not enough. You know, I, I can be an employee and own 0.00002% of the company. That really doesn't make me feel like an owner. If you kind of look at what, what is classically defined as ownership, what an economist would say, these are the hallmarks of ownership. There's two things. One is you have the autonomy to make important decisions. You feel in control of, of the destiny of that business. And number two, you can share in the upside. You have a shot of the brass ring. And what we know from our research is most people do not have that. I'll give you the data. Surveys say that only one in 10 employees feel they are free at work to experiment with new products, solutions, and approaches. We know as a fact that the level of task discretion that employees have has been going down, not up, that only one in five believe their opinions matter at, at work. We've robbed most jobs of any sort of autonomy at all. And we also know that across the U.S. economy, only 2% of all compensation gets paid out in the form of profit sharing or other performance related bonuses. So how would we expect people, whatever shares they hold in the company, why would you expect them to be owners if they have very little autonomy and very little upside? Well, here's a pushback that some of my listeners will have. I, you know, I'd love to do profit share, but we've got people who will benefit from profit share who really just mail it in every day. And then the person sitting next to them does have an ownership mentality and has taken ownership of their position. And I think they do deserve profit share. But now we're creating an inequality, you know, sort of a communism, a socialism way of, you know, that's that's the word they would use, uh, the people who would push back. Sure. Let me talk about how to deal with that. Every employee needs to feel deeply accountable for the value they're creating. And th there should be no place for mediocrity to hide in any organization. So practically, let me give you a couple of ways that, that different organizations do that. So at hire, every one of those small little uh, uh, operating units, the microenterprises, they have a very ambitious set of targets that are all based on significantly outgrowing their competitors. Now, if you meet those targets, you are able to multiply your base salary several times over. So there is a big upside. By the way, you can also invest your own money, not in the entire company, but you can invest your own money in that little microenterprise. And again, if you hit certain targets, you get a big dividend. Wow. You can reinvest your profit share back into just your section of the company. Just so your unit, just your unit. And I can tell you within those units, when everybody in a small team, when everybody in a, in a small unit has a significant financial stake, that team has no patience with slackers, none. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, we talk about Morningstar, the, the tomato processor based near Sacramento. So at Morningstar, there are no managers at all. I, I, there are about 500 people in the company, and they negotiate their targets with one another. And those are memorialized in contracts called colleague letters of understanding. So in, in that system, if you are letting down your peers, if you've written a contract that says, I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to process this many tomatoes, and you're letting them down, first of all, somebody will come to you and they'll say, hey, Gary, you're really not doing your job. I might disagree. If I disagree, we each can appoint another person. So now we have a couple of people who come and have a talk and see what the problem is. And if that doesn't work, it finally goes to a jury of your peers, six people. And if they say, Gary, you're just really not performing, they have the power to fire me. 
And I can tell you, when you've been fired by six of your colleagues, you can't blame that on a personality conflict with your boss, right? <laughs> right. Like you're just like you're done. There are many mechanisms that can work to hold people accountable, but you're right. You cannot have slackers. So I mentioned hire where these micro enterprises contract with each other. So in every one of those contracts, there's a performance clause. So let's let's assume that I have a little micro enterprise that needs help with hiring. So it goes to an HR micro enterprise, by the way, that sells its services. And if you can't find internal customers, you go bankrupt, you go broke. There are no internal monopolies. So I go to a little HR micro enterprise. I need some help with hiring. Every one of those internal contracts has a performance clause that's based on the success of the product in the marketplace. So if I provide that help, that product doesn't actually succeed in the marketplace, I take a hit on my contract, you know, whether I'm providing you with R&D help, with I suffer the consequence. So think about this question. How many people in the typical organization have their compensation at risk depending on market outcomes, right? In most cases, it's a fraction, maybe some people in sales or somewhere else. And my view is that every employee should be financially accountable for success in the marketplace that nobody should be protected from the consequence of their decisions. And so there, let's say there, there are multiple ways of doing this. I could give you other examples, but have an environment in which everyone is an owner does not create any space for people to slack off or do poor work. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Gary Hamill in just a moment. Listen, if you want to empower your people, if you, you want your people to become leaders, if you want them to become owners, if you want them to innovate, if you want them to build a business inside of your business, get them something that costs $275. It's access to Business Made Simple University. And tell them, I want you to think like an owner, and I want you to know how to run a business. Because everything in our online platform will teach them exactly that. We'll teach them to create mission statements for their division, we will teach them to create a clear message for their division, a sales funnel that will grow their division, on and on and on. All of these courses are designed not just for your overall business, but for every division inside of your business. If you want to take Gary Hamill's advice, get your people access to Business Made Simple. You can do that at businessmadesimple.com. You talk in the book about changing your organization. You say to change your organization, you must first change yourself. All of us must own our own part in perpetuating bureaucracy and take corrective action. This means actively committing ourselves to the ideals of human agency, dignity, and growth. This is more than a philosophical orientation. It's a heartfelt conviction that inspires personal transformation. It's on page 257 of your book. As we begin to buy into what you're talking about, and you've really wonderfully combined a lot of the stuff that you know Ken Robinson talks about in disrupting the education system, along with the reality that if you can convert people to be a little bit more capitalistic, you can incentivize them. And if we buy into that and say, okay, our companies are going to be more productive, we are going to make more revenue if we do structure things this way and we change our hearts, what are the first steps that, say, a business with 200 employees needs to take? The starting point, as I do say in the book, the starting point is personal conviction. You have to start with asking yourself, how do I see human beings at work? In, in the bureaucratic model, we see human beings as resources. In fact, we talk about human resources, which I think is just like awful. Or we talk about them as human capital, which is equally awful. 
And so if that's your view, if your view is like my business, my company hires people to produce products, services, and profits, you're already kind of lost because in that rendering, people are instruments. And instruments are never going to you know, do their best work. People feel like instruments are never. So you have to flip that around and say, no, no. People come to work. They choose to work in an institution because it allows them to do together what they couldn't do alone. And together, they produce impact. And yes, income for themselves and owners and so on. But that critical distinction, when I, when I first talked to Zhang Rumin, the, the CEO and chairman of the hire, he visited me a, a decade ago after reading another one of my books. And he said, Gary, what we want to do at Hire is we want to create an organization where everyone has the chance to be a CEO. And this is the critical part, because people are an end and not a means. Hmm. So he starts with that perspective. And once you start there, then everything else follows. The founders of W.L. Gore, uh, Bill and Vive Gore, that was their perspective. So that you have to really start and say, is, is this how I see human beings at work? Because unless you do, you know, it's hard to make progress. I say the second thing is, you have to be willing to go back to first principles. And you know, principle sounds a little like fluffy, like why would I think about principles? But you know, in any, in any field of human endeavor, you reach a point where you can't solve the new problems of the old principles. So if you wanna build organizations that are resilient and daring, as well as kind of efficient, then you can't start with the bureaucratic principles of stratification, specialization, standardization, all the rest. You have to look at a different set of principles. And I think this, this is why that, you know, over the last 50 or 60 years, we've tried so many things in our organizations from total quality management to agile teams and everything in between. And almost none of us made a difference because we keep we keep grafting these new practices onto that old bureaucratic rootstock, that old thinking. It's a little bit like putting a tutu on a dog and hoping it's going to become a ballerina. Right. You you have to start with different DNA. So we take some pains in the book to lay out what we think are the new principles of openness, experimentation, meritocracy, community. And I think as a leader, you have to recognize that building the kind of company you see today at Hire or Gore or some of these other companies that have been added several decades, it's not something you don't flip a switch overnight. You start by saying, here's the way I think of human beings. As Ken Iverson said at Nucor, as Southwest founders said, we view every job as important as every other job. And that doesn't mean everybody gets paid the same because there's a marketplace for jobs and some, some skills are more valuable than others in the marketplace. But it means that everybody feels dignity at work. Everybody feels there's a sense of equity. So you start with there and then you say, right, what are the principles I want to bake into every system, every structure, every process? And just day by day, year by year, you're asking yourself, what would it mean to create a more open organization? What would it mean to create an organization that gives people the freedom to experiment? How do I create an organization that is truly meritocratic, where the people who get ahead are not the people who've learned how to play the bureaucratic game, but the people who, who are building real value as attested by their peers? And so it's taking a set of principles that are fundamentally different from the bureaucratic principles and just patiently over time saying, how do I make sure that those principles are operationalized in everything that we do in the organization? And if you do that, and you do that with heart, you'll end up with an organization, and we know that because we've, we've looked at a ton of these, that dramatically outperform their peers, that have extraordinary high levels of engagement, and can take on all comers, foreign and domestic. I've loved this conversation, and one of the main reasons is many times I have a similar conversation, and the impetus is we should honor people for simply being human. I do believe that, and I love that, but really what you're saying is a little bit different you're saying human beings are by design value creators, and if you set them free, they will solve problems and make the world better. 
Am I right in summing up some of your thoughts that way? I think that's exactly right. Uh, just a couple of quick perspectives. Yes. You know, I, I look what's happened over the last few decades as we made the tools of digital creation available to basically everybody on the planet, and we opened up the channels of distribution with things like, like YouTube. And you look at the extraordinary outpouring of human creativity. It, it wasn't that people suddenly became more creative. It was there all the time. But now, you know, the tools were cheap and, and you, could, you could get heard. You ask the same thing, you know, what's the organizational equivalent of, of giving everybody, you know, video editing and a smartphone camera and new channels? Like, what would that mean in our organizations? You know, today, many people are very worried about what um, AI and automation is going to do to employment. And I think it's right to be worried, but I think they're worried in the wrong way. You know, human beings have lateral thinking skills, social intelligence skills, problem solving skills that machines are not going to have for at least a generation and maybe not ever. I think the concern over automation should be proportionate to the extent we continue to treat human beings like robots. Because if you treat them like robots, yeah, robots are going to be better robots than human beings. But there for sure is probably at any moment, there's some finite number of routine tasks to be performed in the world. And some of those will be done by machines, hopefully all of them. But there is no shortage in the number of intriguing problems to be solved. One of the things that's extraordinarily frustrating to me is economists and policymakers talk about low-skilled jobs. You know, I, I think what makes a job, quote, low-skilled is not the nature of the task to be done, not, not what kind of credentials people need, but whether or not the people in those jobs have the freedom to grow, to learn, to solve new problems. And we see that in organizations that learn how to do this, I don't care whether people are packaging tomatoes, you know, loading airplanes with luggage, driving a forklift truck, those people will spend a good part of every day as inspired problem solvers, making the business better. What makes a job low skilled is when we don't give people the opportunity to use the skills they have and to acquire new skills. And then lacking those opportunities, we turn around and say, well, you know, a lot of people at work are lunkheads and that's just the way, you know, the way it has to be. So when you look at the companies that we profile in the book, most of them pay significantly above industry averages, not because they're like just generous, but because their their people create a lot more value. They're getting more value and they're paying a percentage. Yeah, and, and, and you're sharing those gains kind of equitably. So, you know, a lot of the debate in the last two presidential campaigns in the United States, one of the big undercurrents has been the decline in so-called good jobs, which is a fact right now. About 44% of the American workforce, about 53 million people are in low-wage jobs that allow them to barely feed themselves and their family. Like, like we should be incensed by that. But the challenge in solving that is not necessarily a lot more expensive government programs. The challenge is excising bureaucracy, starting to look at every human being at work as a real human being, and making sure that our organizations are incentivizing them to turn on their those problem-solving capabilities. You know, I, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago to the just retiring, just recently retired um, uh, chairman of, of Nucor, um, John Ferriola. He said, literally, he said, you know, we're based in small towns all across America. We could take about 99% of the people in those small towns in the right environment. They'll do extraordinary work. And this is a company that has 3x the sales per capita as their competitors. That is the most innovative steel company in the world. They have no central functions in R&D, strategy, planning, engineering. All of that is done by blue-collar frontline teams down on the ground who are responsible for generating demand, meeting customers. And so I think the fears we have, the justified fears we have over the deindustrialization of America, over these growing income gaps, 
a big part of that can be solved when we give up on this prejudice that a huge number of people at work are kind of just like meatware and that they really can't contribute uh, more than, you know, the job designers envisioned. What you've alluded to here is a little bit, and not to be dramatic, but a little bit of an, an invisible caste system. And part of that system has been created by the way we do education in this country. I know that you're at the London Business School and uh, that you're a big fan of education. I have in my company, we have about 25 employees. We'll have probably 40 within 12 months. We're a growing company. I have a PhD. I have some with a you know bachelor's degree, master's degree. But probably half of us don't have a degree at all, including myself. So I started the company. I've written a bunch of New York Times bestselling books. I create the majority of the strategy of the company. Don't have a degree. I think, you know, we're about to see a massive disruption in the university system because these kids are leaving school with 150,000 quarter million dollars in debt to be a teacher. To get an MBA to be a teacher, you have $200,000 in debt, you're going to make $60,000 a year. I think it's unethical to charge somebody that much money when you know what they're going to be paid when they use that degree. Blah 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 blah. How much of this problem is being created by our education system and the labels that we put on people going into the workforce? I think certainly a fair amount of it. And, and again, it's a fairly complicated thing to unpack. But for sure, the way we're training people, the skills that we're giving them today are not a very good fit with the challenges we face. You know, I, I think you can go through a university program and easily you can go through and never learn a single thing about design thinking. You know, you can easily go through and never really understand the process of wealth uh, creation in a capitalist society and, and how that works and why that's important. You can go through the, the whole thing and never really come out with any, any kind of financial, personal financial understanding and discipline. So, yeah, I think in many ways it's letting uh, young people down. And it is also creating, and, and I think that's why so many kids have ended up in debt for degrees that really aren't worth very much. It's created a kind of credentialism. Right. Where there's a sense that, you know, unless you have the right kind of college degree, you're screwed career wise. In a sense, that's true. I mean, historically, the data was clear that a college education bought you higher income. But that as much as, as anything is a reflection of the caste system in the world of work. And the fact that as a culture, we bought into it. Yeah. Most organizations are still an implicit caste system of managers and workers, of thinkers and doers, of the clever and the compliant. And that's reflected in the fact that that workers have so little discretion at work. And the fact, you know, according to Gallup, and I, I trust their data, that only around 70% of employees around the world are fully engaged in their work. And when you see how little discretion they have, how little upside, how would it be otherwise? Why would you expect it to be anything else? And so if you go to work and you are judged instantly at work on the basis of your degree, and you're simply denied opportunities, you know, I, I think in organizations of even even leadership training is often reserved for people who already have a bachelor's degree or an MBA. Right. And the idea is like, well, nobody else is ever going to be a leader. Well, what kind of BS is that? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's an interrelated problem, partly with what people are, are learning in school, but partly how that credentialism and that caste system gets perpetuated once they join organizations and never get the chance to grow. So I, I'm not so much focused on the educational part of it. Although what I do see there, and I, and I think in some sense it's quite a positive development, is I think the current crisis that's obviously pushing a lot of, of, of universities to the max is going to dramatically accelerate the kind of disintegration of the typical university, a lot more online courses. You'll be able to build your own degree taking courses from a multitude 
of universities. I think employers are going to start to be much more interested in, you know, what, what are the particular competencies you built rather than whether you have a particular degree from a particular institution. So I'm fairly optimistic this will change just because it has to. We, you know, we can no longer afford the system we have. I agree. It's broken. It's not working. And, and I think the future is very, very bright. And I want to thank you personally for writing one of the books that's going to contribute to what our future looks like. If you're interested in empowering your people, the book is called Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. And I'll tell you this, in our interview, Gary and I didn't even get to some of the practical steps that you can take inside of your organization. Those are in the book. We'll save that for those who buy the book. You can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. Gary, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm very grateful. I, I learned a lot, and so I hope you'll come back on next time you do another bit of thinking. Anytime you like. It was a great fun. Thanks, Gary. Bye-bye. We're pretty innovative in this way. Yeah. And we're moving toward some of this at lightning speed. Yeah. But this really encouraged me to move even further. I, I kind of wonder whether the, the divisions of our company shouldn't be handling hiring and firing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to check with HR. Yeah. But I just wonder if that shouldn't be done. I'm not saying we're doing that. Yeah. If my employees <laughs> yeah. listen to this. The staff is like, wait, we are what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're I fired. Can, I can I hire, fired. Yeah, I can hire anybody <laughs> I want. And I wonder if what it, what it looks like, what it will look like to actually turn media into a, a division that's a very entrepreneur yep. kind of thing. Our certified program already basically already runs like yeah. that. <laughs> Our content team, you know, all these little divisions in sales and marketing, it, it kind of works that way now. I would say we're we're half of this, but I'm really curious about this Japanese company and how they did it and yeah. how they got to multi-billions yeah. uh, doing this. It's really fascinating. Love it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>